Welcome to The Lit Review, a podcast sparked by a moment of urgency, recognizing mass political education as key for our liberation struggles. Every week, your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad, will chat with people we love and respect about relevant books for the movement. Everything from history to theories around gender to sci-fi and beyond. We know that political study is not accessible for a variety of reasons. The high cost of books, academic jargon, the failures of our underfunded school systems, time barriers, etc. Our hope is that this podcast helps address some of those issues, making critical knowledge more accessible to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to the Lit Review. This is Paige. As you can tell, uh, my voice is not that great, so I'm going to try to leave it to our guest as much as possible. Um, quickly, we are with Kathy Cohen, the author of The Boundaries of Blackness, AIDS and the Breakdown of Black Politics. So welcome, Kathy. Welcome. You Thank you for uh, the invite. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you about this <laughs> book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why? It, that you know, there are always big questions. That to me, that's a big question. Who am I, right? Um, I guess in the context of our conversation today, I am a professor at the University of Chicago. I'm a black feminist, queer scholar, activist. Uh, I'm the partner of Beth and the mother of Ella, <laughs> um, and um, I'm someone who now lives in Chicago desperate for, you know, change and goodness in the lives of marginal people and especially black communities. And um, that's what I'm fighting for. And that's generally what I try to write about. And why did you write this book? Ah. And when did you write this book? Okay. Right. The, the book, is, it's, you know, it, it has been a while. <laughs> um, it started uh, as my dissertation in the early 90s. Um, I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan and uh, as a black lesbian had connected with other folks on campus and we started building a kind of informal organization for what would now be called kind of black queer folks, Um, both those on campus and uh, lots of folks who weren't on campus. Um, And as we kind of built these deep friendships a couple of the folks in the organization got HIV positive um, diagnoses. And, you know, I was, I think we all were trying to kind of wrap our heads around it, right? It was early 90s. At that point, it was probably late 80s. It still wasn't clear what the hell HIV was. It wasn't clear if this was something of like white gay men, but I think increasingly we knew black gay men who were getting sick. Um, And I think what was really kind of uh, damaging for me was just like the silence around it, right? Like these brothers were here in our group, they were lovely people, and they were facing this crisis and no one kind of wanted to talk about it. It was a kind of like hush-hush issue. So as I struggled for... uh, a dissertation topic, I thought, well, I want to write about why it seemed that a kind of white, predominantly white gay community had embraced HIV and AIDS and kind of was leading marches and shaming politicians. 
And it felt like there was kind of complete silence and denial in black communities. So that was the kind of frame of the dissertation, which was way too long and kind of rambling. And, uh, and then when I started thinking about the first book, right, the first book you write, largely the book you write to try to get tenure, I, I thought I wanted to change the dissertation a bit and focus primarily on black communities and um, not just black communities, but to really think about kind of issues of power and difference in black communities. So at a moment where, in fact, many of us were engaged in political struggles about kind of the liberation of black people, again, on and off campuses, you know, I wanted to understand why there were certain people who were embraced and others who were um, kind of uh, discarded. And, and that really is what the book is about and where it was located. So it was a, it was a kind of discussion and thought process about power, but it was about power in black communities. And it was a discussion of what does it mean to be a black, gay, lesbian, trans, not wasn't really trans back then, uh, bisexual person, and what what is our relationship to uh, and standing in black communities, and that's that's what where the book came from. So uh, your whole second chapter, though, I know is about marginalization, uh, and it's an amazing chapter. Uh, I yeah, I love that chapter. I refer to it a lot. But can you talk about why you chose to have an entire chapter just devoted to really defining that term, and uh, and then kind of break down what marginalization means? So at the heart of the book, right, in the heart of the discussion about. Um, what you know, I call the boundaries of blackness is a discussion of power and uh, what I would consider to be the kind of marginal status of black people. And so it seemed to me that if if I wanted to think about kind of issues of marginalization, then I probably needed to define how I was thinking about that. Um, and also, you know, they teach you in grad school to engage with the literature. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to be in dialogue with an established literature on power that exists in particular in, in political science where I do most of my work. So for me, you know, marginalization is the exclusion, often categorical exclusion of groups from dominant resources, dominant institutions, participation and control over dominant institutions that really affect and define the quality of one's life, right? Um, and, and while I think in many theories of power, there is an understanding of domination versus oppression, um, for me, too often it kind of slides into something where there are people with power or groups with power, and then there are people without power. And that was, has never been my experience with, with, with black folks and black communities, right? That what I wanted to do with with a theory of marginalization, and that is really what chapter two is all about, trying to kind of theorize marginalization, is to say, let's reject the kind of powerful versus powerless dichotomy and think more broadly about the ways in which there exists power within marginal spaces and amongst marginal people and marginal communities. And, and what does that look like when we begin to try to theorize beyond just domination, but also the kind of internal or intricacies of power within largely marginal groups. And that's what chapter two is about. So it says, well, first of all, 
let's think about processes of marginalization, right? That there's a way in which um, one is defined as outside, um, right? You become an other, or groups become othered, um, that ideologies are produced to justify that uh, exclusion, that institutions are used to enforce that marginalization, right? So it can be the police, it can be the military, it can be banks, right? And there's a there's a example in um, chapter two that talks about the ways in which systems of marginalization get get reproduced, and not always, you know, um, out of seemingly out of malice. And what I mean by that is the example in the book is. If there's a, a loan officer who doesn't understand predatory uh, zoning and so says, you know, I'm just going to enforce the rules. And the rules say I give loans to people who have a certain income and in certain communities, right? And just by following those systemic rules, they will automatically give very few loans to folks of color and poor folks, right? And so, I, you know, part of what I wanted to say in thinking about marginalization is often we have a conspiracy theory, and we should sometimes, right? We have five white men in a room planning to destroy black people, um, which there are. Um, but there are also just systems in place that replicate marginalization that don't depend on an evil white man, right? It just depends on people not questioning the rules and the intent of rules, right? So, so you have ideologies, you have identities, you have institutions, um, and you have social relationships, right? All that kind of help reinforce a process of marginalization. And so it seems to me that if we understand the things that help create and maintain marginalization, then we also want to think about the consequences of marginalization, right? And for me, there were three. I'm pulling down my glasses so I can see because, you know, it's been a while. Um, one is when, when, when folks or communities are marginalized, right, excluded, I think quite often scholars don't pay attention to what happens there. Increasingly, scholars do. So that's back when I was writing this book, and in particular in political science, there wasn't a depth of knowledge about what happens, right? So I want to say that there were kind of three consequences in particular we would pay attention to. One is that there's an altered worldview, and often oppositional ideologies are developed to explain both why you're marginalized, but how, in fact, you can move from a position of marginalization. So we want to pay attention to that. There's the creation of what Alden Morris in particular talked about, um, which is a kind of really developed indigenous community, right? There are alternative leaders, there are sources of information, and also institutions. And all of these kind of um, define the kind of civic capacity of marginal communities. So far from them being powerless, right, there are all these kind of nodes and places of power in marginal communities that we want to pay attention to. And that another consequence is that because, in fact, people have been marginalized in kind of multiple dimensions, that their mobilization quite often is not directed at just one issue, but a more kind of systemic analysis of how, in fact, do we kind of move towards liberation. So part of that chapter is saying, far from just thinking about kind of the processes of domination, we want to be thinking about the consequences of domination and what develops in response to that, that really defines our resistance, that defines how we think about ourselves, 
but it also defines how power is distributed throughout marginal communities. And that becomes the real focus of the chapter. The chapter is to say, if we think that there's power within communities, then who has access to indigenous power, right? Or who has access to power in marginal communities? And who also is excluded even internally? And that, you know, that is a, that's the book is about HIV and AIDS. It's about queer folk. It's about their exclusion and what I call kind of secondary marginalization, which is that even within marginal communities, sadly, there is another process of marginalization, right, that we have to be paying attention to that too often kind of replicates what we've seen from dominant society, we'll call it, um, and that if we, if we understand where we are in that process, then we can really think about what does resistance have to look like for full liberation of black people. So then can you walk us through the rest of the book then? What, uh, where do you go from there? Absolutely. So uh, in the rest of the book, I try to do a, a number of things. One is I try to say, let's, let's just look at the response to HIV and AIDS as it impacted and, um, I guess, put into crisis or exacerbated the crisis that black communities often found themselves in. Um, so one, I try to provide a context for understanding HIV and AIDS in black communities, right? And who was impacted, what were the numbers, you know, why this, in fact, in many ways kind of demanded the response of black communities. So it wasn't a small problem, it was a large problem, right? Um, it affected multiple parts of black communities, not just one part of black communities. It was the type of crisis that was related to so many other things, like were you poor? Did you have health care? Were you homeless? Were you an injection drug user? Were you a sex worker? You know, all of those things. So the case I'm trying to make in Chapter 3 is to say there are so many reasons why we would have expected political leaders in black communities to take up this issue. The fact that they didn't is kind of amazing, right? And that the fact that they didn't has everything to do with this kind of idea of secondary marginalization. The idea that uh, in a state of what I would call advanced marginalization, where some black people, right, have, have been provided mobility and access to dominant institutions and resources, right, that, that they are now invested in a process of assimilation and respectability, right? They don't want white people or other folks to think that black people don't kind of operate with the same norms and values that is expected in society. Um, and so they want to distance themselves from those issues, right, that suggests uh, that somehow we're living outside those norms and values, right? Um, and in chapter two, it's a long chapter, chapter two, um, there's this idea of kind of, of cross-cutting issues and cons versus consensus issues. And what I said is, what I wrote is that there's an idea that much of black politics is structured around consensus issues, things that impact all black people. And in fact, there are very few issues that impact all black people at the same rate. Instead, they're kind of framed as consensus issues. So if you say something like police brutality that impacts primarily black men, you would say, well, that's a consensus issue because that impacts all black people. Of course, all black people should be concerned with it, but it doesn't impact all black people at the same rates. 
So I would say, I write in the book, that in fact what we have more and more are these cross-cutting issues that cross against, across against multiple identities. It's not just that I'm black, but I'm black and a woman. It's not just that I'm black and a woman. It's black and a woman and I'm poor. And that those different identities come to define the degree to which a kind of black elite will take up the issue, right? And so the rest of the book is really kind of struggling with um, – under what conditions both dominant society and black communities were willing or largely unwilling to take up the issues, take up the issue of HIV and AIDS, and to understand that as a process of secondary marginalization that we should understand around AIDS, but we should also apply to other issues. So what, what did you hope at the time would be the main takeaway? And is that the same for folks right now? All right, so so the main takeaway, uh, I wish there was one, right? So there, there are many main takeaways. Um, so in, uh, in a few chapters, I try to demonstrate the ways in which dominant institutions were unwilling to kind of talk about um, the devastation visited upon black communities through HIV and AIDS, right? So... The New York Times, how they frame the issue. Uh, my favorite favorite chapter is actually on the CDC. I think it's chapter four. And uh, the reason it's my favorite chapter is because what I do in that chapter is, is I do enough research to, to make the argument that the disease, HIV, uh, was being presented in different places by different people with the same kind of characteristics, but interpreted in very different ways. So when injection drug users went into the emergency room with pneumonia, um, often those docs didn't pay attention to what was happening because they saw those people as just diseased anyway, right? So we could have caught HIV much earlier, but we didn't, in fact, because for those medical practitioners, there was nothing interesting or important about black bodies walking in who were in injection drug users because they just get stuff because they're dirty. Now, they were going also into emergency rooms. Four or five years later, white men, white gay men who had private insurance went to private docs, often presenting with the same characteristics, and those doctors said, wait a minute, something is going on, right? Because these people aren't, we don't see them as disease, right? And so there is, <clears throat> to me, something really interesting about how science is constructed, right? There's a, there's a way in the world where we think if a doctor sees certain characteristics or symptoms, they will recognize it and diagnose it as such. And in that chapter, it really suggests that, no, how those things are presented on which bodies really determines what a doctor sees. And even science, right, uh, is impacted at a very fundamental level by racism and classism. Uh, and, and so we have to kind of open our eyes to, to that reality, even in the realm of science. So that's, anyway, that's my favorite uh, chapter. Um, so we go through some of the major dominant institutions, the ways in which they didn't respond. And then the rest of the book is also about um, really thinking about black communities and the institutions within black communities, whether it's the black press, 
whether it's black religious uh, organizations or even the black media and black political leaders and their lack of a response. And I guess that's, to me, the kind of other major takeaway, right, which is um, to recognize, and I think that was the takeaway then, and I guess I would say the takeaway now for activists, to recognize the power that is held within black communities and the kind of significance and importance of holding those people accountable, right? Um, accountable to those who are most vulnerable in black communities, to those who are, you know, suffer from secondary marginalization, for those who have kind of been pushed to the outside. Um, how do we hold them accountable? And I think at a very fundamental level, it has to kind of, uh, I wanna be careful, jar us and make us think and think about the kind of elasticity of blackness, I guess. Um, that, you know, I can assume when someone identifies or it, I recognize them as black, that there's a certain type of shared understanding of the world maybe and experience with the world, but under something we might call advanced marginalization where there's increasing bifurcation, that's not the case, right? And that these other identities really do position us with some power or with lack of power. And I think there's, you know, the book is, is meant to say, who will we build our movements around, right? Um, and are we willing to fight power wherever we find power, even when that power resides in our own communities? And I think that was the, the, the kind of part of the message back then and really part of the message today. Well, yes, like were there, does the book talk through examples of what that looked like? Or, um, and can you, can you share some of those in like terms of, um, yeah, how did people center around the sort of secondary marginalization and hold folks in black community accountable? Um, and how did that advance the larger movement against HIV and AIDS? You know, it's a very interesting thing about kind of does the book um, really highlight the resistance, I would argue, to kind of, um, it's not just homophobia, but a kind of politics of respectability that dominated black communities um, in the 90s and continues to dominate black communities and black power today. So I, you know, I do some of that, right? I, I interviewed a lot of activists um, and uh I'm humming in here. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, there are examples of organizations, Minority Task Force on AIDS, Black AIDS Mobilization, you know, other organiz organizations and organizers who decided, look, we can't wait on folks in the black church to respond, or we can't wait on black politicians to respond. We have to save black lives, you know, Black Lives Matter. Uh, we have to save black lives today. And so they did that work. There is also... Um, and I'm not sure it fully comes out as much as I would like in this book, but there's also at this time a kind of reimagining of blackness that that says, yeah, I'm I'm black, I'm a black gay man, or I'm a black lesbian, or I'm black and queer, um, and that is part of kind of how we might imagine the liberation of black people, right? A pushback against a kind of narrow normative understanding of what sexuality, of what relationships, of what family looks like. This is part of our tradition. Um, and you know, I talk about this all the time now, which is 
I think the movements of today, if you look at your lineage, it really goes back, I would argue, to the kind of black LGBT folks and movements from Joe Beam to Combahee to Barbara Smith to Cheryl Clark, you know, to Pat Parker, I and mean, we could go on and on, who were kind of articulating that they would not be denied recognition in black communities and that through their, often through their art, they would hold black people and black institutions accountable. Um, so I think, I, I think coming out of the like late 70s, uh, increasingly around the 80s and 90s, as the only people, or at least the primary people who were responding were other black gay people, the, part of the book is meant to kind of celebrate that work. But I think most of the book is really about uh, the lack of response and trying to understand and explain why in the midst of such kind of devastation, <clears throat> some would argue genocide against black people, um, black leaders were silent, right? And <clears throat> to me, it's the same question <clears throat> that people have asked about mass incarceration, right? Why didn't, why weren't black leaders, you know, up in arms? And I think it's the same answer that for too many black elites and leaders, there is a kind of, the promise of assimilation and mobility means the denial of anything that looks marginal, right? Uh, talk about the margins of blackness. And uh, there is a decision that's being made about distancing not only themselves, but their organizations and black communities from those who are most vulnerable. <clears throat> and I think that's what we're seeing kind of over and over and over again. So uh, there are a few words that you're using that I'm going to ask you to define. But I think one thing that I, I definitely see you talking through is black, queer, mm -hmm. feminist politics. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, organizations like BYP 100 have made very visible and forefront, right? Um, highlight, although it is like a historic tradition, right? Uh, and so can you talk about what do you think that means? Like what is a black queer feminist politic? Um, and, then I, and then I'm gonna ask you to, to talk through a few other terms. All right, uh, what is a black queer feminist politics? I don't, I mean, uh, I know I'm not supposed to say I don't know, I don't know. Uh, well, I think it's in flux and I think some people, um, Think about this differently. I know this is audio, but I'm like closing my eyes trying to figure this out. For, for me, um, so I wrote a piece, in, again, in the mid-late 90s called Punks, Bull Daggers, and Welfare Queens, uh, The Radical Potential of Queer Politics. And, and for me, the idea there was, could we take the frame of or the label of queer and reimagine it reimagine it, right? So that it wasn't confined just to what is thought to be kind of non-normative sexual relationships or identities, meaning, you know, instead of folks saying they're lesbian or gay because there is more fluidity, the idea was that I would call myself queer. And that would not put me in a box, but it would put me outside of something we would think of as straight or heterosexual. Okay, um, so that's one way of thinking about queer. I guess I want to say that for me, a black feminist queer politics is about thinking about one's relationship to normative power. What do I mean by normative? Normative meaning kind of the structured nature of power that comes from 
traditional institutions like the state or the government, that comes from economic system and capitalism, that comes from practices of identities that are thought to be normal, like to be heterosexual, right? Um, So I wanted to say, what if, in fact, and this is the title, what if punks, right, which are often what people call black gay men who, you know, who they think of as sissified, right? He's a punk. Or bull daggers, which thought are black lesbians who, anyway. Um, and welfare queens, Reagan's term. What if all those people who are on the outside of normal or normative power, what if they all were queer, right? And what if the kind of political relationship we built was about being on the outside of that normative power. And therefore, we would operate from a different position of kind of reimagining what the norm was. I mean, this has always been, in part, the tradition of black communities, and in particular, poor black communities, where family gets redefined, where marriage is not the kind of normative position, in particular, of black women, right? Where children are often raised with multiple generations, right? Some people would say, oh, that's uh, non-normative and deviant and bad. Some of us would say that is non-normative, deviant, and allows for a space to reimagine what might be, right? Um, And I think that's the idea for me about a kind of black, queer, feminist politics. It's to say, how would we put into place a kind of a feminist politics that respected people, that thought that we should have a, a system of governance and an economy where people's needs are provided for, where uh, competition and profit was not, in fact, the gold standard, um, where we would invest in communities and schools and people's possibilities, right, and where kind of all these things that stood outside of the norm could now come together as a kind of reimagining and and resistance toward a liberatory state. That for me that's a kind of black queer feminist politics. Another way for me to, to kind of talk about this is I often talk about people like Michael Brown being queer subjects. And people are like, wait, wait, Michael Brown wasn't gay, right? And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that often young black people operate in the world as queer subjects because they are seen as deviant um, and threatening. So it's independent of one's kind of sexual preference and performance. It has everything to do with how I'm seen uh, through the gaze of often the state and people with power um, as someone or some communities who are on the outside. And, and let me just say, I know for some folks who have found queer to be this kind of great framework for connecting with other people, for expressing their kind of intimate relationships, that they're not willing to give up queer to this broader political framework. I get that. Um, but I do think there's a, there's a struggle about what we mean by a black queer feminist politics. And for me, queer is, could be something bigger than uh, how we understand sexual preference and gender performance. 
I know when I read that article of yours, uh, it, it, for the first time, it was when Marissa Alexander um, was beginning her, her trial. Uh, and I remember re realizing, you know, I don't know her sexual identity, but the ways that her relationship to this man was seen as grounds for why she deserved what she was going through. And I was like, oh my goodness, this, yeah. Um, and so what I'm hearing is that there's a power in blackness of embracing those things that are deemed most marginal about ourselves, that we have, that's actually one of our greatest source strengths and, and sources of power. Uh, and that's very different than assimilation. And so can you, you've said assimilation a few times, what do you mean by that? And what do you, what do you see when you talk about black people trying to assimilate? What, do you, what are they trying to do? And, and what are the limits of, of assimilation? Great questions. Uh, okay, so assimilation. So I, I guess I want to be careful, right? Um, we're sitting, having this conversation in my house, looking at my backyard, and you're like, well, we shouldn't assimilate. Um, and it's hard not to assimilate uh, at some level. If assimilation means um, comport or conform to kind of dominant norms and often opportunities, right? I'm a professor at a university in many, many ways, I have assimilated, or at least, you know, I, I look a certain way from the outside. People, oh, look at her. I can understand what she says. She talks nice, goes, teaches at the University of Chicago. Got a, you know, decent house. Of course she's assimilated. So I wanna be careful also to recognize that, you know, in many forms of black struggle, right, assimilation was a, was a significant thing, and I shouldn't say assimilation, but at least having one's humanity recognized um, and legible to a kind of white supremacist society, that was an act of resistance and something people had to struggle for. So I'm not demeaning that. Um, but I'm suggesting <clears throat> that when we continue to kind of advance without at least questioning what does it mean for people who can't, who don't have the same opportunities. You know, when we don't question a system of capitalism that is increasingly an advanced capitalism built on uh, shrinking, uh, I guess, uh, pools of labor and uh, discarding those who don't fit into kind of what's needed in, in a kind of uh, increasingly digitized and technical uh, economic system, right? If, if we're not kind of thinking and questioning that and then pushing against it, that's what I mean about assimilation and the mobility um, that black people are seeking. I, I get it. If you have two kids and you're trying to like just do better so your kids can go to a decent school, I'm not trying to say you're a bad person. <clears throat> I'm saying, though, that we have to kind of be cognizant and conscious about how do we open up the opportunities that we want for our kids, for all kids, right? And the way to do that is not generally going to be by just getting yours in the system. It has to be about rethinking the system, right? Rethinking everything that is going on around us. Now, that said... So I think deviance <laughs> provides a space where people are doing things that are not 
seen as part of the norm and we have to examine that space and think about are there things there that in fact are valuable? Are there things and decisions and behaviors and relationships that do provide a different way for us to connect with our humanity? Do it, does it provide a different way of educating our children? Um, so I, that's what I mean about a, a, a deviant space. I'm not saying that everything that happens there is revolutionary or liberatory. You know, there are all kinds of things and everywhere that we want to kind of reject. Um, but even when we think about kind of gay and lesbian activism um, prior to AIDS, it was about how do we rethink sexuality, right? Um, not only in terms of the kind of the continuum, but also what does kind of sexual relationships and intimacy mean and does it have to mean monogamy, for example? Or maybe it does mean monogamy, but it means monogamy under different um, conditions and constraints. So I just think that there, there, there are these moments where we have an opportunity to kind of take a step back and reimagine what might be. One last thing I'll say, which is, you know, the other problem with a kind of politics of respectability where we're trying to meet the kind of dominant norms is that we're often trying to kind of force uh, something into a bottle that just won't go anymore. So, so one of the things that drove me a little, and there were many things that drove me a little crazy about uh, the Obama administration, was this emphasis on marriage and, um, you know, the need for both folks who were queer to be married, but also black communities, this idea of where, you know, where are black fathers and things of that sort. Um, but so there's a, there's a statistic that I always kind of point to that 80% of black children, um, who are born to mothers 30 and under are born to mothers who are not married. Right. And for many people, this is a crisis a crisis because in fact, we need to figure out a way to get those mothers married. Now, an, another way of thinking about this is we don't have to think about how to get those mothers married, unless, of course, they want to be married. But we do need to think about how to support mothers and fathers who are not married, who are raising children, right? And so that's what I mean about kind of rethinking what are the possibilities and how, in fact, folks structure their lives and what brings them happiness and how do we support them and how do we support the raising of their children. I, I think that's the that's the issue. And so if we, if we take that framework, it gives us a better sense of kind of what we mean by respectability politics, right? Um, this idea that we are engaged in a politics that will demonstrate to a kind of outside world, often internally also, that we are respectable and good people, right? That we uh, adhere to the kind of values that define what a good person is, whether it's I have a job or, you know, I go to church or I'm married and I didn't have my kids before I was married um, or I'm heterosexual, right? There are all these kind of markers that say basically you're normal um, and you somehow deserve respect. And that becomes a, a kind of framework for how we think about what types of politics we want to pursue. So if we go back to HIV and AIDS, if we go back to mass incarceration, right, if we go back to a kind of trans politics, 
there's been a kind of rejection of those issues, often from black elites, because in fact, those would be those are politics associated with people who are not thought to be respectable, right? Instead, they're deviant. And they are thought to cast a negative light on black communities, um, prohibiting the quote-unquote good black people from the mobility that they somehow deserve. Um, and you would hear, and when I would interview ministers or politicians, they would say to me, like, look, I'm not, I'm not going to promote HIV and AIDS because those are junkies and those are prostitutes. And, you know, they had a whole narrative about these people as less than um, who were not just, were not only kind of harming themselves, but they would say are harming good and respectable middle-class black people, right? So, If every organizer or activist in the Black Lives Matter movement read this, do you think it would change what the work looks like or what's happening? That's a great question. Would it change what the work looks like? I would hope it might change what the work looks like in the sense that I'm not sure it would change their analysis because, you know, the folks I know, like yourself and others, I think you have a kind of broad, not you, but in the, the group, broad analysis that understands kind of systems of oppression, that understands marginalization. I think many of you consider yourselves feminists, so I feel, you know, very good about that and queer. But I do think it would mean that um, the kind of work on the ground would at times be a little less reactive to, for example, police killing and understand the multiple ways in which the state is engaged in devastation against black people, including the continuation and not the st- of HIV and AIDS and inadequate funding for medications and the stigmatization even that continues today in black communities about responding to HIV and AIDS, right? Um, I'm always shocked that uh, a movement that kind of focuses around a a tagline that talks about black lives matter seems not to be able to really move in the broadest sense about who's black lives, right? Um, and, and that's not to say that folks haven't taken up, for example, trans issues and the, and the violence against trans, uh, folks in our communities and outside of our communities. But it does seem to me that too often it has been limited to a a discussion about, um, police violence, um, and maybe increasingly also expanding now to economic violence. And, you know, what does it mean again to be, a poor black person, because in fact, that's where the center of this struggle for liberation, I think, really has to be rooted. Um, And that means an analysis of kind of cross-cutting issues and secondary marginalization and the ways in which we structure um, resistance. So I, you know, would reading the book change the movement? I hope for the better. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's so many great books out there. that folks are trying to engage. Um, but I'd like to think that it would give uh, organizers and activists a broader sense of the targets, right? Including maybe a, a bit more focus on the targets even internal to black communities. All right, so we're at about time. So I'm gonna um, thank you again. I learned a lot. This was fantastic. I'm really excited to release this. Uh, we all try to end every episode with our guests sharing a favorite passage or a quote. And so I believe you have a, 
a significant passage you're going to read for us. So I'll turn it over to you and thank you again. Paige, thanks so much for uh, inviting me to have this conversation. It's been really great thinking about a book I wrote so long ago. So I'm going to read a couple of um, paragraphs from the first chapter of the book, which includes a number of vignettes that really tries to kind of outline and, and make vibrant the ways in which HIV and AIDS was uh, impacting different parts of black communities. So this vignette is about Billy. I'll start. Billy said he had often thought of telling his parents he was HIV positive, but that would mean telling them that he was gay. He even considered breaking the news about his status by taking the more respectable route and telling them that he had contracted AIDS by injecting drugs. But he figured they would never believe him since they had always been a close family and would know if their son was using drugs. The funny thing was, for all their closeness, they didn't seem to know that he was gay, or maybe they just couldn't admit it out loud. Throughout the time I spent with him, I never heard him question why the rejection of his black community was so inevitable. I never heard him curse the leadership of the community that refused to mobilize and draw attention to the impact of this disease in the black community. Instead, he seemed to be preoccupied with holding on to what little stability and privacy he had left. Thank you. another episode of the lit review a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement we are your co-hosts monica trinidad and Paige may two chicago-based organizers special shout out to the lit review's very own sponsor the arcus center for social justice leadership out of kalamazoo college keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next monday same time same place want to hear about a specific book Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep, Keep reading! reading.